Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. I was thinking this week, getting ready for the message, when I was uh, 10, my family took one of my favorite vacations ever, all six of us, to the Canadian Rockies. After a long day of hiking, we uh, actually were driving back home right before dark through Kicking Horse Pass. Isn't that just, that's just like the best name for a mountain pass, isn't it? And we ran across a sign to a hike to Ross Lake. So, of course, we had to do it, even though we knew we'd have to hustle. So anyway, we had to get the hike done before dark. We knew we had to hurry, so we jumped on the thing, and we were walking quietly. It was around dusk, and we thought, well, this is a great time to see animals, so we're going to be quiet and see if we can see some wildlife, only to get to the lake. And uh, we all stop and become very white in the face because about 25 yards down the path was a mama bear and two cubs. We just stood there, frozen. Uh, my mom practically fainted. And, uh, and, and they eventually took off, headed down the path, and went into the woods. And so we decided, well, we're not going to go any further on this hike. We're going to head back. And so we took on the, we went on the way back. And, uh, then all of a sudden, uh, 10 yards ahead of us at one point on the hike back, there's this little furry butt sticking out in the path. Out comes baby bear one, baby bear two. You're starting to think, where's mama? Out comes mama, 10 yards away. It was one of the scariest moments. We just stood there. We froze. We didn't say a word. Thankfully, again, the bears walked off. But this time, obviously, they walked down the path the direction we were needing to go. So in order to try to avoid uh, being surprising them again and being surprised ourselves, we decided to wait a couple minutes until they were down and out of sight. And then we started singing at the top of our lungs. And so imagine four boys singing, Mary had a little bear whose fur was black as coal. That's the one song I remember we sang. Uh, you know, hey, good song. Appropriate for the choice, right? Really manly. What we realized in that moment is we were ill-prepared for knowing what to do when we encountered dangerous wildlife. So we got home that night. We talked to the rangers. And we bought some bear, bear bells the next day. And uh, from then on, I became fascinated with reading about how you are supposed to act when you encounter dangerous animals in the wild, like grizzlies and bear, other bear and moose and buffalo and mountain lion. The fascinating thing is that much of what you need to do when you encounter a wild animal isn't necessarily what comes naturally. If a black bear is coming at you, you don't turn and run. You don't climb a tree, which is what we would all want to do. Instead, you you stay still, you make yourself big, you yell at the top of your lungs trying to frighten them away. And you don't hike quietly when you want to, to try to see wildlife, at least not in bear country, unless you want to become food for Papa Mama and Baby Bear. So you use bear bells, and you always talk when you're hiking. Whether bear or other wild animals, you, you always, you know, the safest way to respond in almost all those instances I learned is really not what you would naturally want to do. And honestly, likewise, in finding a breakthrough in our lives when we're stuck and we want to grow, often that means we do something counterintuitive, something that you don't want to do either, something that you don't feel like doing. 
As we look at Joseph's life over the last few weeks, we've seen that counterintuitive behavior frequently. Joseph frequently does things that would feel that he doesn't feel like doing, that he doesn't want to do, but those things are the basis of his breakthroughs in life, like being faithful to God and others, even when he doesn't feel like it. When he's hurt, he doesn't play the blame game and be the victim. Uh, he doesn't. Well, that would be natural, right? To feel sorry for yourself, to be angry, to demand justice. I'm sure Joseph had those feelings, right? But, but he didn't let those feelings control his actions. Joseph steps beyond that, moves past it, and presses forward in life. When he faces temptation, he doesn't stay there and try to fight it. He runs from it. When he faces discouragement, he doesn't allow it to create apathy or, or, or make him want to sit back and escape rather than keeping doing things, which is really the most natural thing. When we're really discouraged, what we want to do is we want to crawl in a cave at home and escape. But Joseph stays engaged and active in life. And Joseph also stays thankful even in the midst of all of it, which is not natural. It's not natural for us to be thankful when we're going through difficult times. Instead, we want to feel angry. We want to feel resentful. But those feelings tend to keep us stuck while thankfulness actually moves us forward. When Joseph faces success, he doesn't step into the spotlight and seek all the applause. He actually steps back and he does the faithful thing. Faithful to God and faithful to what is best for the other people, not seizing the success for himself, but keeping others in mind, giving God center stage. Today we're actually going to talk mostly about how Joseph overcomes bitterness, not by taking revenge, demanding justice, settling scores. Uh, I'm sure he felt like he wanted to do those things. I'm sure he didn't want to give grace and forgiveness. But that's exactly what he did. And I think for some of us, maybe all of us at some measure, that's where we're at in life. We have experienced some level of hurt or abuse or betrayal that has put obstacles in our path and mountains that seem hard to overcome. And God is asking us to do things that we don't feel like doing. You don't want to forgive after what she said to you. You don't want to forgive him after what he did to you. But the longer you wait, the deeper and the higher the mountain of hurt and bitterness goes, and the more people it affects, it'll hold you back and hurt others. Some of you don't want in this process to let other people in, even though you know you need help, because of the feelings and thoughts and experiences you're dealing with are too vulnerable, too embarrassing. But you need others in your life to experience a breakthrough and walk this out to move past it because if you were to have gotten past it, you would have already done so by now. See, one of the things that Joseph Lice invites us to, much, much like Jesus as well, is that breakthrough often requires you to do something you don't feel like doing. So today we're going to conclude our look at Joseph, and we've seen Joseph, 17 years old, get a dream from God about his parents and brothers bowing down to him. He foolishly tells the dream, amps up jealousy, they brothers sell him into slavery. He does well in Potiphar's house and, and, and seemingly making a difference in a powerful man's house. Maybe this is the dream, but Potiphar's wife wants him to sleep with her, and he, he doesn't want to, and so he keeps on rejecting her, and eventually feels, she feels so scorned, she lies about it, and, and, and Joseph is thrown into prison with no release date, no option for appeal. He thinks he's there for the rest of his life. Even while in prison, Joseph experiences some favor and then more setbacks. But throughout those setbacks, the Bible reminds us God 
is with him. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago, God's presence is not determined by our circumstances. But even in those moments when Joseph didn't feel like it, didn't want to believe and act like God was with him, God was with him. Now, one day Joseph wakes up in prison, still no hope. It's been two years since he had the last glimmer of hope that something could possibly change. He's probably given up that hope altogether. And yet by mid-morning that day, he's taken from prison, shaved, showered, dressed in fine clothes, and by noon he's brought before Pharaoh. And within a matter of a few minutes, it takes Joseph to hear Pharaoh's dream, immediately interpret the dream, and then give him two paragraphs of counsel on what to do. Literally less than five minutes, probably less than three minutes, we end up at Genesis 41 where it says, So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or a foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. So 13 long years, and it all changes in a moment. And Joseph knows this is it. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy, the dream that God gave him. And yet, yet I can't help but think on many nights in those quiet times at bed at night, he still struggled with remembering what was done to him, with, with nightmares about the terrible circumstances, the pain, the tough stuff, the difficult conditions he experienced as a slave and a prisoner, thinking about how he had been abused and abandoned and rejected and betrayed. But his new life as the second most powerful man in Egypt has him really busy. He's preparing for seven years, for seven years to be prepared for the famine. And then when the famine comes, he's in charge of rationing the food during those seven years. So in chapter 42, we get this picture of Joseph handling those decisions of people coming to him to buy food. And so I just want you to imagine the scene for a second. Joseph is sitting there with this line of hundreds of people, if not thousands of people a day, coming to Joseph to ask for food, to buy food. And then one day... As Joseph is just taking a breath and a sip of water between customers, he glances back at the back of the line and he sees his brothers coming in line to buy food. Can you imagine the flood of emotions and thoughts in that moment? Joseph then recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. I mean, how could they? He's, he's dressed like a royal Egyptian. I mean, they wouldn't think that was him. And what will Joseph do in this moment? There are lots of options before him. He could have had them arrested and executed, and no one would have thought twice about it. He could have uh, made them slaves and given them the most horrible duties. He could have thrown them in the dungeon and tortured them. He could have taken the high road and treated them as any other customer, sent them away, none the wiser of who he was. And, 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 but as they come nearer, Joseph realizes it's, it's, it's ten of them. It's all of his half-brothers, but his full-blood younger brother, Benjamin, is not with them. In that moment, it's not a leap to think that Joseph may have wondered, well, where's Benjamin? Did they do to him what they did to me? And so Joseph decides to test them and find out what's going on. The text says he spoke harshly to them, accusing them of being spies. And in the process, he gets them to tell him that they are sons of one father and 10 of them are here and one is dead. They're referring to Joseph, who they're talking to right now, and the other is at home with their father. And Joseph still presses the matter saying, yeah, but you're spies. Unless I see the younger brother with you, then I'm not going to believe you and I'm going to execute all of you as spies. So he throws him in prison for three days. At the end of three days, he gets him out, brings him before him, uh, presses the matter more. And then he decides, I'm just going to keep one of you 
as kind of collateral that you'll come back and the rest of you can go home, take the food you want to buy, and you have to bring Benjamin back to ever get this other brother out of prison. And then, not realizing that Joseph actually understands their language, is the, bro- the brothers start talking in front of Joseph. Uh, and in 42 verse 21 it says this, They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, the oldest, replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? And now we must give an accounting for his blood. And in that moment, the emotions erupt in Joseph, remembering all the stuff they'd done to him, but also it's, it's revealing how deeply this whole issue is still felt by him. He glimpses how his brothers realize what a great sin, and they did greatly sin against him, and how heavy that guilt has been on them. And they think after 22 years, they are finally paying the price for their sin. Joseph sends the nine home with the food, and after they pay for the food, Joseph has his servants put secretly put the brothers' money back in the sacks of their food. In chapter 44, we see them return with Benjamin this time. They still don't know who Joseph is, and yet Joseph throws this banquet for them, and he seats them youngest to oldest. Uh, their spidey senses are going crazy right now because they're going, how would he know? What's, what's going on? This is really weird. And then it gets even weirder because Joseph proceeds to make sure that Benjamin receives the best and twice as much as everyone else. What's, doing, what's he doing here? Joseph is showing clear favoritism to Benjamin, his full brother, seeing how his brothers might respond. After dinner... They're leaving to return home and Joseph has a, a servant secretly put a silver cup in Benjamin's sack, travel sack. And as they leave, uh, he lets him get down the road a little way and, and then Joseph sends the guards after them. And they discover, of course, the silver cup and they accuse Benjamin of stealing and they're going to jail him. And what's he doing again? He's testing them. How will his brothers treat the favorite one now? He's heard their remorse about how they treated him, but have they really changed? And this time, Judah steps up and says, Take me in his place. I will sacrifice my life if you will just let Benjamin go free. Now, just so you know, Joseph and all of his brothers, all the sons of Jacob, and Jacob also goes by the name Israel, all 12 of those brothers form the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, not only is this a powerful moment in this story, but it's also a powerful foreshadowing of Jesus a descendant within the tribe of Judah who would one day give his life for yours and mine. See, Joseph is so moved by Judah's sacrifice that he can no longer hold it together. So he asks everyone to leave but his brothers in the room. And he he weeps so loudly, the text says, everyone in all the rooms next door could hear him wailing and news spread to Pharaoh what was going on. And in that moment, we see the heart of Joseph and each of us and how we can relate to God to find a breakthrough in this matter. For, uh, chapter 45, verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Now, I think it's reasonable to be terrified, right? I mean, they've just discovered that the brother whom they beat up and sold into slavery is standing there with the power to wag his finger and behead them in just a second if they want to, right? 
Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. I'm not sure I'd be comfortable with that command either, right? If you're them. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. I am the one you sold. Just so you know, and just so you're crystal clear on which brother I am, just in case you did it to any other brothers, that's me. I'm him. Just so you know what you did. But then Joseph goes further and he says, And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. He's saying, be free of the guilt. Be free of the fear. I'm not here to take revenge and demand justice. Because, he goes on, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Just so you don't miss what's being said here. Joseph begins by reminding them of what they did. He's identifying himself by what happened to him in the past. You belittled me. You sold me into slavery. You sent me down a dark path of rejection. Joseph identifies himself by what was done to him. I am the victim of your sin. But then he quickly flips it. And he reframes his story and identity. You sold me, but God sent me. And he goes on and says, For two years now there's been a famine in the land. For the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God sent me. God made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. And though you abused me and sold me into slavery, you made me your victim. Three times Joseph emphasizes, God sent me. God sent me. God sent me. Now, God sent me to do what? To save your lives, you who abused me, to save you. And to save and bring a great deliverance to millions as well. See, breakthrough is found in recognizing your story was never just about you to begin with. See, but getting to that place where life is not about you and is really difficult in an age of selfies, isn't it? I mean, social media and selfies have propelled us to think about how we look and our own quality of life 24-7. We've cited in the past University of Michigan and Virginia studies that correlate how more time you spend on social media, the more likely you are to be unhappy and struggle with depression. But it goes even beyond that. In this article titled, How Social Media and Plastic Surgery Go Hand-in-Hand on the website of International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, it states, social media is driving surgery today. In fact, one of the latest trends is people who use various filters on Instagram and Snapchat. It used to be you tried to look like the movie star, right? But now it's the filters on Instagram and Snapchat that they bring to the plastic surgeons and say, can you make me look like this? So I thought I'd do the same and have you vote on which improvement you thought was best for me for a plastic surgeon. Actually, uh, surprisingly, the service today gave me one other one. If you can bring up the next the, that, that slide. So... This is, I, I, we have such a great graphics team. I absolutely love them. They do such a fantastic job. But have you ever been in an experience where you look at one thing and it means something to you and, you look, and other people look at another thing? That's just a beautiful cross, isn't it? But you know, I just had such a, I, this is, I'm so, so unspiritual today. I saw this and all I could see was a belly button. 
So if you want like a tummy tuck and a belly button changed, you can take this picture with you. <laughs> and it's winking. It's a winking belly button. Everything has become about me in the social media area. How I look, what I eat, what I do, the vacations I take, what I wear. And, and honestly, self-promotion has become an even more refined art. Anyone who is good enough at self-promoting on say, Facebook can become a self-proclaimed expert whether they know anything or not, right? It's difficult to overcome ourselves when we are so consumed by how others see us, how others have it easier than we do, and our focus on what we don't have, especially when we face difficulty. When we face difficulty, our natural tendency is to make my story all about me, my happiness, my comfort, my success, my justice, my worth. And yet in those difficult experiences we face, the story of Joseph's life shows us that his story and our story can be written with one of two titles, and it's our choice. I am what has been done to me is one title. I am a victim defined by the horrible stuff I've gone through. I am what my history says I am. Or we can have the title of your story being, I am loved and I am sent by God for a purpose greater than me and my experiences. See, breakthrough is found in choosing to respond to God's story rather than your history. It's the same story, but it's a really different title. And the different title is important because it has different meaning and different motivation and different purpose to your life. See, Joseph acknowledges and he still feels deeply the pain and the disappointment of what has happened to him. But Joseph is not going to be defined by his history, by what happened to him. Joseph is going to be defined by God's favor and purpose for him. And he seizes every opportunity to do good and serve people because of that orientation. Joseph refuses to identify himself by his hurt. Rather, he defines himself by God's redeeming work and purpose for his life. And as such, God, through Joseph, invites each of us to choose the story of our own life as well. The story doesn't change, but the title changes. Uh, Pastor and author Kyle Eidelman puts it this way. He says, the story is the story, but it doesn't have to be the story of your weakness. It can be the story of God's strength. The story is the story, but it doesn't have to be the story of rejection, but of redemption. The story is the story, but it doesn't have to be the story of an affair, but a story of reconciliation. The story doesn't have to be a story of addiction. I'm not saying that addiction didn't happen or didn't cause pain, but that doesn't have to be the title of the story. It can be a story of recovery. See, Joseph, even though victimized, refuses to see himself as a victim. Instead, he looks to God and the fact that God sent him and God has given him favor at every step and God has worked through him in every circumstance. So the story goes on, chapter 50 years later, we see Jacob, uh, Joseph's dad, dies. And so you see the brothers terrified again because they're wondering if Joseph has been waiting for dear old dad to pass away to take revenge. But Joseph again extends such powerful forgiveness that is centered in the saving, healing purposes of God. It says, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And that is a great question. Am I in the place of God? 
See, so often in life, especially when we are hurt or offended, we tend to put ourselves in the place of God. We want to control retribution, revenge, force and apology. We want to control justice. But Joseph says, I'm not the one who dispenses justice. I'm not in the place of God. Who am I to judge you? And then he turns his perspective again to where God invites us all to live. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So notice, Joseph's forgiveness is not just words. His forgiveness is not just about his own freedom either. See, in forgiveness, Joseph is acting exactly like he always has, even after being thrown in prison by Potiphar to actively bring good to others by serving their needs and seeking to do good even to those who need his forgiveness to help others move beyond their sin, their guilt, and their shame. See, breakthrough comes when we extend God's forgiveness with our words and our actions. Now, there are lots of preachers and people who like to talk about forgiveness from the it's really not about them, it's about you perspective. You free yourself when you forgive. You need to forgive for your own health. And you know what? That's absolutely true. You can't find personal freedom and, and, and healing until you forgive. But that's also a biblical half-truth. God wants us to forgive, not just with our words, for our own benefit. Why? Because remember, the story of your life isn't just about you. God wants us to forgive and with our actions offer whatever generous, appropriate support we can give to encourage and help the ones we are forgiving experience God's invitation through us to come into relationship with him and receive his healing and salvation and grow beyond their sin. And that's exactly what Joseph does. He wasn't showing mercy for himself alone. He wasn't showing mercy to honor his dad. He was showing mercy and generous kindness to his brothers because that's what forgiveness is and that's what forgiveness does when we're faithful to live life as God leads us. See, One of the indications that you and I are walking into a breakthrough and moving from our hardship and difficulty in life uh, past that is when we are willing to forgive those who have hurt you and actually desire and work for God's salvation and good for their lives. See, Joseph's ability to forgive starts in realizing he's not God. He's not judge. He's not the judge. He doesn't have to do God's job. It's not my job to change them. It's not my job to make them want to repent. It's not my job to withhold forgiveness until they actually do repent. It's my job to love and serve them as God would. God has a bigger story. See, if you're struggling to give forgiveness, it may very well be that you need to stop playing God that you need to stop being the one who needs to make sure that they repent or that they receive the just due for their actions. And it's time for you to say, I'm going to step in and join in God's story. I'm going to be like Joseph. Even better yet, I'm going to be like Jesus, who gave his life in love and service and grace and kindness for those who needed to be saved, which is 
all of us. See, ultimately, for Joseph, his life wasn't about what happened to him, but about how he responded to what happened to him. So I, I, I ran across the story this last week of Gerald Sitzer, a theologian and professor at Whitworth University in uh, Spokane, Washington. In 1992, Sitzer was driving home when his car was struck by a drunk driver. In that moment, he walked away personally with just a few cuts and bruises, but he lost three generations of women in his life, his mom, his wife, and his daughter. It was overwhelming, as you can imagine. In the years that followed, Sitzer struggled with how to process all the questions of the pain of, of that whole situation. In 2012, 20 long years later of processing, Sitzer wrote the book, Grace Disguised. Allow me to read his conclusion and how he processed that and moved on with a meaningful life. Sitzer writes, he says, The experience of loss, what happened to me, doesn't need to be the defining moment of my life. Now think about that. How can he say that? I mean, the loss of his mom, wife, and daughter all in one fell swoop. Wouldn't that be a defining moment of his life? For Joseph, being beaten and sold into slavery, falsely accused and thrown into prison, how does that not become the defining moments of his life? But Sitzer goes on and says, the defining moment of our life can be our response to what happened to us. It's not what happened to you, but how you respond that is the defining moment of your life and your story. And that's exactly what we see again and again and again and again in Joseph's life, isn't it? He responds not to his history, not to the circumstances, but by just simply being faithful and curious each day to see how God is going to work at writing his story and fulfilling the dreams that God has given him for his life. For many of you, you are not responsible for what happened to you, but you are responsible for your response to what happened. You're not responsible for the abuse that was inflicted on you, but you are responsible for your response to what happened, whether you let the story be God's story of redemption and healing or whether you let the abuse define who you are and infect all of your relationships going forward. You may not be completely responsible for your spouse leaving you, but you are responsible going forward for how you respond to let God redeem and write your story. You are not responsible for the mental health diagnosis or the cancer or the downsizing you experienced at your work, but you are responsible for how you respond, whether you let your history and your struggle define who you are or whether you let God's power and story define you. And please, hear this really, really, really clearly. Your response is not a response of control, of bucking up, of taking charge of your growth in your own effort. Because Joseph didn't have control of his own destiny, and neither do you and I. None of us have control of our own destiny. Your response is to respond to God and God's redemption in little, every little step and opportunity that you experience each day. To turn to God and believe his truth about you, not the lie of the his, that the history tries to put on you. To turn to God each day and just, just stand up if that's all you can do. Not even take a step, but just stand up or, or, or just take one step and saying, you want to trust his truth more to let God's grace and love and power be demonstrated through you as you serve and care and define who you are more than what's happened to you. So Jonathan 
Haidt is a psychologist, uh, a researcher, teacher, who created a hypothetical exercise to, exper- uh, to experiment uh, in working with parents. And, and so what he did was he said, basically, uh, imagine that you are about to become a parent, and someone hands you the entire script for your child's life and says, you have five minutes to edit out or white out of the script. Anything you want, you can change for your child. Now, if you're a parent, you're going to voraciously read that script really fast, right? And when you go find out your child was diagnosed with a learning disability, you're going to wipe that part out of the script, right? When you find that their best friend from kindergarten all the way through their high school years uh, tempted them to get into drugs in their senior year, causing them to get caught, humiliated, put in jail, lose out on all their high school sports, getting kicked out of that and lose their college athletic scholarship, you're going to wipe that part out of their uh, out of their script, right? When they're in college and they're madly in love, they think they know that they want to marry this person, and then that person breaks up with them, and they go through two years of really deep, dark depression, naturally, you're going to want to wipe that out of the script of your child's life. See, what seems natural to us is to wipe out all the really hard, difficult, painful experiences. In a sense, that's what our Sue Happy culture has done already by eliminating my beloved teeter-totter because we can't have that anymore because it's too dangerous, Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the way our culture is. What seems natural is to eliminate the hard stuff, the obstacles, anything that could create pain, anything that makes life harder. We want to make life as easy as possible. But do you really want to do that? Think about it. How is that going to change the story of your child's life? I mean, you might eliminate the very thing that God is going to redeem and use to create that deep, other-centered compassion in your child that is going to drive them to live life well and make a difference. You might eliminate the very thing that leads your child to realize how desperately they need God and God's salvation in their life. You just don't know, do you? I mean, God doesn't bring all the tough stuff that we experience in life. Sin, the brokenness of this world, does that all too well. God doesn't need to have any part of that because that happens all the time and that's not part of his nature. But God uses even those things that break his heart to redeem and shape and write the story of our lives. If Joseph had been given the script for his life at age 17, I'm pretty sure he would have whited out, you know, slavery and prison out of his, out of his script. But Joseph says, no, those things are certainly the result of sin, not something God desired. Yet into the midst of that, God sent me with a purpose. And God's story is bigger. And God's ability to redeem even the most difficult things is profound. And I choose, Joseph said, to see life through God's story. As you read Joseph's story, you see repeated often, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. And it's those three words that give you and me the meaning of our lives. I mean, first God sent himself as Jesus to be the better perfect Joseph, that God came to serve us and take all the punishment for us, uh, sin upon, our, upon himself so that you and I could be saved and our lives and stories could be redeemed and become meaningful as we follow Jesus and seek to live life and be like Jesus in this world, to invite us to show his love to other people so that we can have breakthrough from our own sin and we can invite other people to break through from their sin and circumstance 
has is to live meaningful, sacrificially loving lives that are part of God's story. To spread forgiveness as we seek and save the lost, bringing God's goodness and love wherever we are each and every day. See, our lives are not just about us. They're about God's story being written in us and through us. So don't quit. Don't give up. Let the title of your story be God's story. Let God's forgiveness and His love put your history in the past so that no matter how painful, how broken, how unjust it was, you get to walk free today into God's story and God's purpose for your life. It's a question. Where do you need to change the title of your life? From your history to God's story sending you. See, for most, wherever that title needs to be changed in our lives, there's also a need for us to give forgiveness. Forgiveness acknowledges the wrongs of what happened to us and, and in no way belittles them. We see that in Joseph, right? And forgiveness often requires you to act, though, in a way that you don't feel like it. You can forgive someone and still be angry, still be grieving the cost that you have paid because of their sin. Anger and forgiveness can and often do reside in your heart at the very same time. But forgiveness comes down to what you choose to do daily. Will you forgive daily and each and every moment to walk in that forgiveness? Are you going to be part of God's story to actively forgive and bring the possibility of redemption and healing and salvation to those who have wronged you? Are you going to choose, or are you going to choose to be focused on the bitterness in your life? So, question. What do you need to forgive today? Whether you feel like it or not. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I'm just so grateful for your presence with us. I'm grateful for the ways you come into our lives and even when Satan, evil, sin just brings so much harm to our lives that you write a beautiful story out of that. Lord, we see that in Joseph's life, and I pray right now that your spirit would come to each and every one of us in those painful historical places in our own lives and that you would help us daily walk in forgiveness Lord, even if, even if the anger like Joseph experienced lingers for years and years and years, would you help us to choose to forgive and choose your love? And Lord, would you come and redeem our lives and continue to write such a beautiful story through each and every one of us? Come, Lord, and be the title of our story. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you continue to worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.